Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Later on in today's episode, I'll be talking to Nikki Gallagher from the Further Education and Training Organisation, Solace, and Trinity College academic Joan McNabbo, who, along with Sonia Lennon's Dress for Success campaign, are behind a really interesting report on women outside the workforce called Women on Home Duties. I'll also be talking to first-time women candidates in the upcoming local and European elections. I'll be joined by Socialist Party Solidarity Candidate for Europe and Dublin City Council, Rita Harold, Green Party local election hopeful Hazel Chu and Rachel Prendergast Spollen, who is running for People Before Profit, also in Dublin. First, though, I wanted to talk about a couple of other things. And I wanted to mention uh, a new three-year awareness campaign to highlight sexual harassment and sexual violence, which is being run by the government. No Excuses will feature radio, social, cinema, TV and outdoor advertising up to 2021. And the first TV ads are going to be broadcast Friday, May 10th. That's tomorrow. And they're going to feature both male and female perpetrators and victims. They cover a number of scenarios ranging from sexual harassment in the workplace, unwanted physical attention at a bar and an attempt to expose someone in a locker room. And the ads also direct viewers to the campaign website, which provides further information and advice as to how to help and call out such situations. Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan has said, research has shown that Ireland suffers from disturbingly high levels of sexual harassment and sexual violence. And the ads are aimed at highlighting and helping people recognise these behaviours. Um, and in the week where we had that incredible piece by Sarah Jane Murphy, where she was harassed on the dart, which you should all look up if you haven't read it, um, I think it's really important. It'll be interesting to see how this campaign plays out and we'll be watching it quite closely and hopefully get someone in to talk about it too. And the Irish Times Business Awards took place this week and the Distinguished Leader in Business Award 2019 was a woman called Breege O'Donoghue who is one of three people in charge of transforming the fortunes of pennies and uh, she's a 76-year-old woman from Clare and everything she wore I think on the night was from pennies and it cost something like 20-odd euro. They call her the pennies matriarch and she officially retired from the business in 2016 after 37 years as part of a tight knit leadership team that transformed the Irish fashion retailer into such a global success story. And I just wanted to 
We had an interview with her in the paper today. She says, I enjoy what I do. I love life. I love work. I'm active in the gym. I swim. I cycle. I do yoga. I'm learning bridge to keep the mind active. I want to be thoroughly used up by the time I die. The harder I work, the longer I live. So I thought that was a very good uh, way to put it. She wants to be thoroughly used up. And there she is, a really phenomenal businesswoman, Breed Joe Donoghue, who was honoured at the Irish Times Business Awards. Now, a new report has found that thousands of women who are currently on home duties, I'm using air quotes for that because I've never heard it before, so who are on home duties represent a major source of untapped potential in terms of addressing skills shortages. Research carried out by the state's Further Education and Training Authority, SOLAS, shows that of the 218,000 women between the ages of 20 and 64 who are not currently participating in the workforce, 16,000 could potentially be attracted to return to work with supports such as flexible working models and training courses. I'm joined now by Nikki Gallagher from SOLAS and by Joan McNabo, who authored this report. Joan, tell me about the report, how it came about and what the results found. Um, I think it started when I discovered there was about 60,000 women with third level qualifications who weren't working. So it started from that because I couldn't believe that sort of figure of people who'd invested so much in their education. So then we looked um, across all people who were, or all women um, in the end, who were on home duties and it came across that there was such a different experience depending on education level. So women with third level qualifications had young children primarily. They were very closely aligned to the labour market. So they'd recently worked or relatively recently, whereas women who had up to a leaving cert were... um, they were less likely to have younger children. So there was a large share who'd, who either had children who had left school or didn't have children at all. That's about 90,000 have no work experience or haven't worked in about ten, at least 10 years. So these are people that trying to get these back into the workforce. What, what do we need to do in order to incentivize them? And I come from the area of looking at skills analysis. So we see skills needs across the sector, across sectors. So it's like, how can we use these people's skills to match against the economy? And Nikki, from the report, what were your, was your takeaway from it in Solace? Um, I suppose for me, I see a massive opportunity. Um, a lot of what we do in Solace is about supporting people to come back into the labour market. Um, so when we see this pool of 16,000 people who are willing and uh, probably very well able to come back in, we're really delighted. I mean, we do a lot of work around what we call work-based learning. So it's things like apprenticeship, traineeships, um, online learning, where we support people who have amazing aptitude and have great skills. They mightn't always realise the kind of skills that they do have. And, you know, most of these women are CEOs of their own families, you know. Um, so when we saw this, we thought, great, this is something, this is a really interesting um, opportunity for us to talk to these women, particularly as the women may not feel confident, they may not feel they have an awful lot to offer into the labour market, but we know different, you know, and we want to support them. And that's why we're working with Dress for Success, because, you know, Sonia Lennon and the team, um, they work really closely with women who don't feel they have the confidence um, to support them to, I suppose, what Sonia says, look great on the inside or feel great on the inside and look great on the outside. And we're really kind of keen to do that, to support anyone who wants to come back. But we fully appreciate 
not everyone wants to come back. As Joan said, you know, there's lots of women who are quite happy to stay at home yeah. at this stage. I mean, there's 218,000 women between the ages of 20 and 64 not participating in the workforce. And of those, you believe that 16,000 of these yeah. do want to come back and could come back if they were supported. So what are the barriers to these women then? What, what do you hear people saying the reasons why they just feel they can't get into the workforce? Um, a lot of the feedback we're getting is women who, so in terms of those who've recently had children, that it's, they're looking at the commute, the childcare, the flexibility within the their jobs that they were working in prior to going on maternity leave and thinking it's just not worth it. Mm. So that's certainly one area we need to look at. But I think for the, the women who, where childcare isn't the issue, there's barriers like, confidence is a huge one and getting that work experience. So that's where we would see work-based learning being the kind of the the best opportunity for them. Absolutely. And then, you know, I mean, we're all talking about the future of work and different skills that are required. And we think, you know, the days of sort of the nine to five rigidly sitting at your desk, they're coming to an end, you know. So I think, you know, we need to think, even ourselves, you know, in some areas in Solace, we are struggling to hire um, because the economy is so buoyant. Um, So one of the areas that we have decided to do is develop an apprenticeship for IT within the public sector. And that went live a couple of months ago. So people, employers have to be creative you know on the one hand we are we have this bank of knowledge with Joan and her team um, and then we're also you know we're funding the education and training sector to support people but we're an employer as well and we have to step up too so we're starting to be a bit more creative in how we approach things. Because is that one of the big barriers I mean if you have small children and you, you're facing into okay the childcare is one issue but it's not the only thing stopping people it's the idea that you won't be able to be given flexibility that if you go into the workforce it will be very rigid hours wise that you can't kind of have um, uh, you know, different times and different days and, and work at home and all those kind of things. Do you, are you finding that employers are really getting that message or is there still that mindset that, no, this is how it has to work? I think it depends on the sector and the company. Some companies you're really seeing because they need to, you know, if they if they cannot find the the people to match what they need, they have to think outside the box. Because I think a lot of them are saying that they do flexible working, but that's still full time working. And that's just not for people with young kids. It's flexible part time that people are looking for. As far as from my own experience, it's not it's not flexible that you need to cover 40 hours over a week, no matter how flexible that is. It's very difficult to find that when you have young children, particularly you see the more children that people have, the more difficult it gets. So it's. You know, the more difficult it gets for employers to find people, the more they're going to have to learn to adapt. But it might be easier for larger companies to do that. Then you're looking at smaller companies and do they have that flexibility themselves? But I think, again, we're all talking about a work-life balance, you know. So actually, this affects everybody, really, you know. And the more an employer can attract potential talent, the better for everybody, you know. And right now we're looking at this particular group of people. But we, we're looking at other research within the organisation. I mean, we're going to be talking about older people in a couple of months. So there's all sorts of different things that, that I suppose there's all sorts of different solutions to what we're calling the skills crisis at the moment. Yeah. And going on from the skills crisis, educational attainment, people actually, you mentioned the whole body of women who, who haven't got qualifications. How can you support women in that way so that they can get maybe some of the training and education that they need that will make them a more viable sort of um, prospect in the workforce? Well, I mean, that's that's one of the things that came out that, that was really striking is there are nearly 12,000 women aged 20 to 34 who don't have um, work experience. 
so they, who have less than a leaving cert. I mean, we we imagine that most of these women are older, that they didn't have yeah, those opportunities. Yeah. Because back then, people yeah, didn't. But, but you know, exactly, you left at the degree really cert and you left. So for me, that's so that's socioeconomic situations going on there, I assume. We haven't been able to look into it. But like, we need to break that cycle and that was certainly something that Sonia Lennon was keen on doing that that's something that, that yeah. you know we really need to be looking there shouldn't be 12,000 women who've never worked at that age group and we I suppose the brilliant thing about further education and training and the education and training boards who deliver is it's community based so it's in every single community in Ireland you know there's short courses taster courses longer courses with qualifications you can do uh, you can do an apprenticeship that leads up to a four year qualification Uh, you can do a 12 week course you know or you could do an online course we met a woman last year who qualified as an accountant while she was on maternity leave using our e-college platform you know so there's really people might not think of exactly so there's really you know there's really cool stuff out there it's just I suppose that's part of our job is trying to get the message out and letting people know all these options are available we do have a website called fetchcourses.ie and the idea is that all the courses for further education and training are available in the one one place and people can identify what's happening locally Um, but we do think there's a real opportunity um, I think for all of us and you know education is no burden you know no matter whether you work or whether you don't work in the end it's brilliant to expand your mind and expand your skill set and it's it's good for everyone. It's good for society. So if there are women listening, which I'm sure there will be, who have um, some of those barriers or all of them or just feel like they're stuck and that they can't get back into the workforce, what would you advise them to do and where can they start? Because often, I suppose, when you've, you're faced with something that feels like, oh, I can't do it, it just it's impossible. It's, you're almost paralysed by kind of like, there's nothing I can do. But as you were saying, and from this report, uh, there are ways for people to kind of make that break. Yeah, and I think it's looking to see where are the skills needs in the country at the moment. So, okay, you may not want to go back to what you were doing previously, but don't just pick something because it's the easiest, like the in terms of hours. Have a look at what you actually want to do and is there a way of upskilling um, and looking at the courses. You have Springboard as well as another option um, for the higher What's education. What's Springboard? So Springboard is run by the HEA um, and they're actively looking for returners to work as well. Um, and it's about getting training in areas where there are skills needs. So the the employment opportunities you would think would be quite high once you completed one of these courses. And then I suppose for the women who are struggling with the confidence, even knowing where to start, Dress for Success is a really brilliant place to start. Um, because it's about so much more than clothes. Like, oh, I mean, absolutely. The, the, the interview absolutely. outfit is one aspect yeah. of what they do, but yeah. they do so yeah. many other yeah, things. Yeah, I mean, they really support women to fulfil their potential. I mean, that's, that's, that's their, um, their goal, really. And the outfit is just one part of it, like you say. Mm. So just to finish... Um, of the 16,000 that you believe could be attracted to join the workforce, what will success look like for you? I mean, are have you got a target or are you kind of just hoping, you know, I suppose even if one woman gets back to work, that would be a good thing. But are, are you kind of ambitious with this? Yeah, we are. We're really happy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we um, So we've had incredible feedback. Um, and uh, I suppose we're, we're talking to Dress for Success to kind of do a follow-up event that's very practical from an employer point of view. Because really, you know, we can't put all the pressure on the women <laughs> either, you know. So it's not just up to women to kind of find the job that suits their particular needs or whatever. So we're going to do an event, um, hopefully in the next couple of months, uh, with employers, where we talk to them about how they can practically 
attract these women back into the workforce and into their own, I suppose, their own companies and really, I suppose, access this amazing talent pool. Mm. And you mentioned there we can't put all the pressure on the women. I think it's really important to mention men as well and the fact that uh, men are so much more involved in parenting and everything like that now. And parental leave, is that going to be a factor too where couples sit down and sort of decide who's going to go back to work and who's going to have a chance? Because in the past it has been assumed that the woman will step back, but things are very different now. Are you seeing that change? Not seeing it in the data, right. but you know, yeah, I, I that's am the hoping, thing, isn't it? Yeah. We kind of have this idea, yeah. but practically, yeah. is it actually happening? Yeah, and I mean, I think the thing is to keep women. It's it's not in the long term. I would like to see it's not about encouraging women back to work. It's holding on to them into work somehow, keeping them attached to the labour market, even when they're on maternity leave, and just maybe doing a few hours until they're ready to come back. So that's what that's what I would like to see as the success because it's easier to continue on than to go back. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing from some of the companies who are very proactive in this space, all the different things they're doing to support, I mean, dads as well as moms. Mm. Um, But we heard a really good example last week of one company that does mentoring for women before they go on maternity leave, while they're on maternity leave and when they come back. That's so sensible. Completely. Because, you know, when you come back from maternity leave, it's like you land back in and (laughs) and everyone's (laughs) kind of expecting that you'll just pick up and carry on. And as anyone who's come back from maternity leave knows, it's not like that at all. Yeah. Uh, and that can be a real barrier to, to sort of getting back and thriving in the workplace because you feel you've let your left behind. But someone actually mentoring you yeah, through that whole absolutely. process would make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. I have to mention Mark Paul as well because he chaired your uh, did, your yes. launch event yes. of the report and he was talking about parental leave um, and yes. saying how good that would be. And I think someone shouted up, what, can you breastfeed or something? <laughs> and he got yeah. a bit of stick for that. <laughs> he did, but he, he took it in his uh, in, in good spirits. Yeah. But it was a good idea in a way to have a man uh, talking about it. Absolutely. To, to, yeah. absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we have learned over the last while is that, you know, you don't gather a group of women to talk about women's issues. You know, that's never going to change anything. We all know, you know, we all know what the the challenges are. It's how we bring everybody into the conversation. And then it's turning that conversation into practical steps, you know. Um, So I suppose that's what we're kind of committed to do. Right, well, well done on the women on home, home duties. I've never heard that phrase before, actually. It's a funny it's one. It's taken, like it's they're on a military like, operation, <laughs> <laughs> which in yeah. a way it is a lot yeah. of the time. Um, but the women on home duties report, um, well done on it. And hopefully it will make a difference to those, that cohort who really are dying to get back in the workforce but are, are struggling. Yeah. And as you've said, there's loads of opportunities and ways that we can sort of navigate it. So thank you very much for coming in. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. More than 500 women are running in the upcoming local elections and around 40% of those who have declared for the European elections are female candidates. Have the recent referendums on the Eighth Amendment and marriage equality inspired some of the first-time women candidates to have a go at mainstream politics? Well, to talk about this and loads more, I'm joined now by Socialist Party Solidarity Candidate for Europe and Dublin City Council Rita Harold, Green Party local election hopeful Hazel Chew and Rachel Prendergast-Spollen, who's running for People Before Profit in Dublin. Hazel, I'm going to start with you. You put up a tweet um, of yourself putting up a poster and it caused a huge reaction. Tell us about that story. 
Uh, it was amazing uh, reaction, actually, Roisin. It was it was one of those things. I, I I put it up because I literally spend all night posting because the the curfew was from one. So like we were out at three in the morning, still posting, and I promised my mother I will send her a photo as soon as uh, we we were all done or close to done. So I sent her a photo of me up a ladder, <laughs> and uh, and I actually got this kind of. Silent reply back, and you never know what my mother. She's one of those people that if she doesn't reply back to you, it means she's pissed off. So, so I got, I gave her a ring, going, "Oh God, she better not be annoyed at something there." So, gave her a ring, and she actually sounded really upset. And I was there going, "Mom, mom, what's wrong?" And she goes, "Oh, nothing. It's just a photo you sent me." And I was there going. Oh, well, you know, I was careful and I had wrote my brother, my younger brother out as well. So and I said, Joe was careful. We both didn't fall. Everything's fine. Uh, you still have your slaves for this weekend to mo- help you with your garden. And she just went really quiet. And I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she just goes, no, no, it's just like I'm... And, and she started crying and she said to me, oh, Hazel, it's just like I came here 40, 43, she said, years ago. And when I came over, I had no money, I had no fans, uh, friends or family. I had nowhere to live at the time and I knew no one. I just never imagined that like 40 odd years later, I will see my daughter's uh, poster on the election poll or election poster. And I'm getting a bit teary myself, mm-hmm. sorry, but it was just such a lovely a sentiment from her because I think when she came here she felt so isolated and she As was a Chinese woman yeah. coming from with with her small children at that point because you were born in I was born China. here so and she uh, she didn't know anyone here and she just she felt so isolated she didn't have the language she didn't think she would integrate well at all and I guess uh, like 40 odd years later she's just really happy that this is her home this is her home that her uh, daughter and son grew up here that they were born here and that they actually Joe was born in Hong Kong but uh, they, they grew up and they were having a happy life and they were finally integrating and settling in and I think to her she felt really accepted then yeah. I think that was the main thing that and then it really struck a chord with people didn't it I mean were you, were you surprised by the reaction <laughs> I was really surprised because I put up guys Ah, sure, it's just another tweet. And but then my phone started buzzing all day, and I was like, going, "What? What is it now?" And the worst thing is, a couple of weeks before, or months beforehand, when uh, we were tweeting about other stuff, I had got a fair bit of trolling after an article I wrote about um, uh, diversity and uh, and tolerance and um, racism in the country. So I kind of thought, "Oh, maybe it's that. Maybe it's uh, getting a bit of trolling for this." But no, it was absolutely incredible. It was a really positive response. There was a very, very small minority that kind of had uh, negative things to say about it, but otherwise, it was just amazing. It was overwhelming, like the amount of lovely messages I got from people saying, listen, I uh, hope your your mom's well, like randomers who didn't know my mother and said, oh, hope your mom's well and she should be read. And I get just best of luck in the campaign. It was just lovely. It was a really, really nice, uh, nice uh, a few days just getting positive messages. Well, we'll people. talk a little bit later about your motivations for getting into politics. So the thing about the three of you is that you're all first time candidates. And I see you sort of as um, part of that kind of wave of activism that's happening. That's very exciting at the moment in this country. And it's really making people put their money where their mouth is and step up and, and you know, into a very challenging sphere. So, Rachel, tell us a bit about your background and your what's led you to this point. What led me to this point? Uh, well, there was a few things. Um, I have three kids. One of my kids uh, has uh, uh, ASD, so he's high-functioning autism. And, um, you know, anybody who has a family member who uh, has uh, what's deemed a disability or has a special need of any kind, you'll know um, 
you are their advocate. You have to fight for everything. You have to fight for the things that are supposed to be their rights. So I was already in that kind of battle mode. (laughs) Um, And that had been going over years. And then uh, I got very involved a few years back with um, the fight to repeal the eighth. I worked with uh, a bit with the abortion uh, rights campaign. I worked a lot with Anna Cosgrave and Repeal Project and really, really just flung myself into it at the cost of business. But, you know, this is the higher purpose was calling. Um, And I really devoted the time and I really worked my backside off on it, as did people up and down the country. Fair play to us all. (laughs) Um, But after that, you know, and when everyone was kind of, first of all, recovering from the trauma of it, you know, um, I took the time um, to go, you know, equality, this, this is a battle that we've won for equality, but equality is meaningless if you don't have a room, roof over your head. You know, equality is meaningless if you don't have access to special uh, need services or education. You know, it's all, it's all for, uh, that fight was for nothing if it's not for everybody. So I kind of examined my conscience, talked to my family and looked at the time because I have three kids. You know, this was actually good timing for me. It sounds a bit cynical, but, you know, my eldest was in transition year. Um, the, the smallies are still in primary school. And I said, well, it's now or never because I have the time now. I can really throw myself into this or I can wait a few years. And you know yourselves, guys, it's like five years is a hell of a long time. You don't know what life's going to throw at you. So, yeah, they were the two primary things that drove me really into activism. And then, as I said, because particularly housing for for, um, the local elections, I think if you don't have housing on the top of your list, you need to examine yourself or have a good look in the mirror because it is critical for everybody in many different ways. And it's an equality issue as far as I'm concerned. And I should mention that you're from People for Profit, which is actually the best uh, in terms of numbers of women who they're fielding. I yeah. think you've got the most of, of all the parties. Yeah. So that's fair yeah. play. And uh, a lot of new candidates yeah. as well, first time runners. Are here, and we have the highest percentage of women. Yeah. And, you know, that comes on the back. And from personally, for me, the decision party wise, I took a very long time to decide who I was going to dedicate my time to. And I made the decision because it was such a cross-party effort for repealing the eighth. Uh, but I was very carefully watching who was putting the most work in. And for me, it was a very easy choice on that basis. Okay. People for profit were right there with the shoulder to the wheel. Yeah. You know? okay, Rita, we're talking about um, that more visibility of women in these elections. There is an increase. I think it's something like 6% in the, in the local elections, which is small enough, but it's still uh, sizable. And it feels like looking at the posters that there's definitely such a more vibrancy. There's more fresh faces, people we haven't seen. Um, and your poster is particularly striking because you're there with your repeal jumper and a loud tailor. Um, now you're going for Europe as well as the local election. So as an activist before this, what was it that got you um, to take this next step? So I've been active in the Socialist Party for about 10 years. I'm 29 now. So when I went to college, <laughs> I had this idea from watching American TV shows that you got into politics in college. Um, so I jumped into that. And uh, obviously different campaigns over the years, fighting for free education, as involved in the battle against the household tax, uh, even though I didn't have a house or anything like that. Um, and then obviously the battle against the water charges. But repeal really has been my main focus for about the last six years. Um, very focused on that. And I think it just has an enormous impact to have such a big social movement in society and 
obviously we're talking about it in terms of repeal here in Ireland, but if you look at this historically or globally, you can see it in other instances as well. We all the time uh, in ROSA, the socialist feminist movement group that I'm in, uh, we talk about the miners' strike in the 80s in Britain, where if you look at the statistics for after the miners' strike, there were more divorces um, because people felt actually, I don't have to put up with the way things used to be. And there were incredible solidarity actions from obviously lesbians and gays support the minors, which the brilliant film Pride is based on, uh, from migrant rights groups who uh, sent solidarity to uh, the minors who were on strike, who were facing the same issues they were facing in terms of being basically starved off the picket lines by the Tories and in terms of being literally beaten by the cops on picket lines. So marginalised groups across Britain and actually across Europe sent their solidarity and that had a transformative impact. So if you look at women stepped into politics after that as well. That's really interesting to think that repeal has can and that that social movement and also marriage equality can Mm. have other offshoots that might not seem so obvious. You know, I hadn't thought of that before. No, definitely. I think there are uh, PhDs in the making here (laughs) in the future (laughs) to look into exactly what's happening. But to have an election on the eve of the anniversary of the repeal referendum is a golden opportunity. And the fact that it's local and European elections, it's it's a bit easier to, as a first-time candidate, put yourself up for a local election than it is, you know, for a doll election. Um, so I think it is a really good opportunity. And you can see it from Love Boats have done this really detailed list of the hundreds and hundreds of candidates who were involved in the Yes campaign all around the country. There is a lot to choose from there, the different strands of who were active um, in it. And there's also these very useful lists which are people who were actively against repeal yes. that you can kind of check to Thanks see that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to kind of support those people or not, you know. Very handy to know because you might not know and people, some yeah. people kept quiet so it's good to know the people who didn't uh, who oh, sat on the fence yeah. as well as yeah. There's a lot of maybes actually I noticed on the list that uh, the ones who sat on the fence who didn't cho- choose one way or another they're colour-coded as well didn't give opinion. So, so Left yeah. their opinion on the door. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Listen, let's. I just let's talk about let's get you on the hustings and talk about what you represent and what. And you've already mentioned housing, Rachel. You can expand on that in a second. But uh, Hazel, you're the Green Party, so I'm really curious to see how the Green Party are going to do in these local elections because we see we're having this moment now of climate change, sustainability. You know, all the very young people getting involved in that um, movement. Um, so, what are you finding? What are your policies, and how are you getting received on? the doorsteps at the moment? Well, my, uh, the party and my, myself, our main priorities are for us climate change, climate action and also housing. So uh, as Rachel was saying, if you don't have housing on your list then there, there, there's something wrong with you. You need to take a better look at, at the city and in Ireland at the moment. With 10, over 10,000 now people homeless, we need to do better and we need to build. We, we have been talking and talking about building and proper accommodation and proper rents, uh, controls, but those things have not happened to the extent that they need to happen. So we need to build more housing. We need to introduce new models like cost rental. So we need to actually make sure that there's planning regulations in what we build as well. If you look at what um, was released yesterday in, in, in Dunleary, there was a submission um, that was put into on board Panola about a accommodation, co- cohabiting, uh, uh, co-housing accommodation for 42 units that shared two kitchens. So 40 Two units that share two kitchens, and when I saw that, it just 
to me, it reeked back of 1999. Like we were suddenly back 20 years ago when the Dublin City Development Plan had one bedroom apartments at 38 square meters or two bedrooms of 55 tiny things that just we, we had got past that to proper regulations. But now we're going back to it again. And for what? For, for greed of developers more than anything else? When are we going to start looking at how we house our people and how we get the homeless figure down properly? So so that is one of our main priorities in the Greens. My, my second one and the Green Party's second one is climate action. Like we all talk about climate change, but let's be honest, it, it's actually climate breakdown now. It is a climate emergency, whether people want to, to admit it or not. I, I know a lot of uh, doors I knocked on said to me, oh, no, no, no. So there's there's still time. Like I think people, I think the young people are just uh, a bit eager. Was what I I got at one door a couple of days ago. A bit eager, and they're jumping the gun. And I, I just stood there and said, No, they're they're actually we're all late to the party at this stage. So it is the case that we're missing emissions in 2020 by a mile. We're going to be fined 600 millions just um, on, on that basis. And that affects us financially, uh, affects us economically, but health-wise as well. Like for every car you have on the road, it costs us X amount in um, in the HSE at the moment. And we need to start thinking about that. We need to start listening to what young people are saying in terms of how our climate is breaking down. Okay, thanks, Hazel. Rachel, what about you? And what are the re- what's the reaction you're getting on the doorsteps when you're bringing your policies to the people so I'm in Stillorgan? I'm running in Stillorgan. So it's, uh, I am a first-time candidate and it, we haven't run anybody there before. So it's uh, fresh new territory. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's brilliant um, to see the reaction of people because we haven't been there before and just to be putting our ideas out there um, you know, it's a traditionally quite conservative uh, ward, but the door is wide open because housing, you know, it's affecting everybody across all sectors in society mm-hmm. for us and for, you know, for any local uh, councillor um, and particularly for us in Don Leary. Uh, it's essential that we keep public lands in public ownership mm-hmm. and we build public housing, you know, and also to lift the uh, rate by which you can access public housing because right now it is so restrictive. And even at that, we have 4,500 people on the housing waiting list in Joan Leary Town. We are not going to get near that. There's only, I think it's about 121 will be built in the next two years. Now, you're talking about that co-living uh, mm-hmm. plan that's in Joan Leary as well. Um, that's an obscenity. You know, that's an obscenity. To be, to, to be forcing people to live in shoeboxes and uh, expect them to be thankful for it. And for, for the idea that this is somehow acceptable, you're right about, I mean, it's not just going back to 99, it's going worse than that, you know. Um, some of those units are about roughly the same size as a disabled parking space. Mm. That's not living, you know. Um, so for us, really, it's critical that we hold on to our public lands, build public housing and do it on a huge scale. And Rachel, you're having people on the doorsteps, you were telling me, uh, saying, oh, the housing crisis doesn't really affect me. But then, you know, they're having their uh, kids living with them in their Kids living with them, grandkids living with them. Um, Like it's because we have quite limited amounts in the Stillorgan Ward of public um, housing. um, It's more um, what's what's, what's really kind of engaging people is, is how unaffordable it is, whether it's for mortgage or rent. And yeah, it is absolutely, I mean, it's communal living now is the, is the norm. Um, old family houses that badly need to be retrofitted to meet climate action uh, requirements to, uh, and, and they're having their children, their grown up children come home, some of them with their grandchildren mm. and 
they have no options. You know, there are young workers up in Slorgan who are both working, both well-educated, small kids in school, mm. phoning me up going, I've got a rent increase I can't afford. Or another woman a couple of weeks ago was like, I'm, I've got an eviction notice. She was horrified. She never in her life thought that this would ever happen to her. Mm. It, it was that somehow, you know, that she was immune because of her education, because of her profession, mm. because they're married with kids and they've done all the right things yeah, in life, yeah. you know. And there she is being evicted and, and terrified that her fam- family, though they're both working, are going to be plunged into homelessness. I mean, this is chaos. Rita, you're not in a way there. Is that sort of similar to what you're hearing in, in your neck of the woods Absolutely. as well? Absolutely. Um, if people are looking at my social media at all, they'll see that I've got a very young campaign team and uh, I keep overhearing my canvassers having chats explaining their own rental situation um, because it's, it's really actually positive that all kinds of people are seeing the housing crisis and even if they aren't personally being forced to live in a B&B or a, a, a homeless uh, accommodation hub at the moment, over and over again I'm hearing people say rents are too high for young people um, and the reality is that the situation we have at the minute is landlords have a huge amount of power and the approach of Dublin City Council of the majority of the councils around the country is to in fact push the responsibility for providing social housing onto private landlords through things like HAP, through obviously RAS, the old scheme, um, and onto private hotels. You know, the, those aren't homes. We're going to be bearing the scars of those decisions into the future in terms of the impact that it's going to have on the health, on the mental health of the children who are being forced to live in those situations. Just what was being described there in terms of someone getting a notice to quit, the enormous stress that that puts on a family that that puts on a person you you cannot underestimate it 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 particularly in Dublin West uh, with my colleague Ruth Coppinger we are just getting requests all the time for assistance and unfortunately the council have not built so what we're calling for in this election is uh, for 100,000 homes to be built in the next three years by the state so obviously that would be in Dublin but also around the country Um, and people sometimes say oh well if you can't get a house in Dublin would you not move down the country there are homeless people in Kildare there are homeless people in Kerry because all across the country we've had the same plan which is that housing should be dealt with by the private sector the private sector have given us unaffordable mortgages They've given us sky high rents. What we need is public investment. So we're saying actually there should be direct state investment, which is also what we're calling for on the broadband issue. But uh, that's another topic. Yeah, Um, I'm just listening to you all there and thinking how much enthusiasm you have and and, uh, passion and, you know, you're wanting to change. I mean, to me, that's the really that's the valid reason to get into politics is because you want to make a difference. But we've seen over decades that sometimes that's not why people are in politics at all, you know, and um, whether it's a family connection or it's other kind of, you know, just an interest in power or, or whatever else. But there is, you know, you're talking about this crisis like Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil are the, are the ones driving it. They're, they're the ones making the decisions. Is there any sense among you that you can, can you make a difference? Like, is there, I mean, I'm just looking at the futility aspect. You're, you three are here. You're working, you're, bottoms off to, to do this you're, you're, you know it's, it's, it's a thankless task in many ways you don't know how it's going to turn out but there must be some kernel in you that thinks no I can do something I can, I can make changes I'd love to talk to you a bit about that about um, is there any sense what's the point or obviously there's not you're thinking there is a point there's a massive point there absolutely is I mean look the, the, the changes uh, in, in our society over the last few years have proven people power 
is very strong. And we just have to, or jo- well, certainly my, I feel my job is to inspire that amongst the community, you know, for whatever issue it might be. It might be, you know, getting a local amenity open like Glenalvin Pool up in Storgan. But, you know, crucially, we have proof positive that how, if we stand together on issues and climate and housing are the two absolutely key issues that we have to stand together on, you know, and to inspire people power to push the big parties to um, I could really use bad language. <laughs> I'll do my best not to. Um, but yeah, to, to, to change policy. I mean, the housing crisis is entirely policy driven. It's, enti- it's, you know, this is and that's it's really upsetting if you if you allow it to upset yourself. You know, we'd go with all. I think three of us go down rabbit holes, you know. Yeah. But the, the important thing is to stand up and speak out and say this is an unjust system. This is a punitive system, you know, and climate action equally. We, this is an emergency. We need to declare it as an emergency. There are other countries now and local authorities in Ireland. Every single one of them needs to declare an actual emergency and start acting now yeah. on it. Hazel, can you make a difference? Do you think you will? I, I think definitely. I think if you asked any one of us 20 years ago if MARF uh, would have happened, they would have said no. So if you asked us 15 years ago if repeal the 8 would have happened and we would have probably all said no as well. So I, I think if you get a a critical mass of people to to try to fight for something, you will make something happen. In terms of what is happening right now, as Rachel was saying, it, it's policy driven. So you do need that engagement from the public to elect the right representatives to be on your local and national government to make sure that the right policy is put in place. Your your Dublin City Council, which is where I'm running for Pembroke, is is purely driven on the Dublin City Development Plan. So who Whoever your councillor is that you're electing on it, make sure that they know how to tie, how to, I guess, best uh, support this development plan because that is their main job. Their main job is to make sure that they write a good development plan that connects well for transport, for housing, for climate action, all these items into uh, into the overall plan, and that's their job. So make sure. When they come to your door, make sure you ask them the right questions. What are their views on housing? What are their views on climate change? What are their views on transport? And and if they can't answer of those questions, any of those questions well, or if they say to you, for example, in relation to climate, if any politician comes to my door and tells me, oh, it's a step change for you to make, I would just look at them and say, are you kidding me? And I have I have received lots of leaflets and uh, and uh, material to tell me, oh, this is the step change you, you can do by recycling X. And I know that. I, and every household knows that they have a step change to make. But overall, from a policy level, the government needs to do more. They need to stop greenwashing and actually start uh, start, start acting on it. So, right. Rita, you're a child minder. You're 29. Um, you're a first time candidate as well. You are a really passionate person. But as we we're just talking about, you know, who's making the policy, who's driving all of this? You know, how, how much do you feel that you can make a difference? Yeah, if you look at the powers of city councillors, they absolutely have been watered down in recent years. Um, in fact, a lot of our legislation does come from Europe. Uh, so I am running in the European election as well. But even there, um, members of the European Parliament don't have the power to initiate legislation. Our systems are set up to centralise power. So the European Commission, uh, the ruling party and government, obviously, uh, uh, have 
a huge amount of power to dictate how things happen. And in our local uh, government, the city managers or the county managers have a lot of power. So it is not the case that electing the right person will fix things automatically. But our uh, stance and what I've seen as an activist over the years is that having someone who will be a fighter alongside the movement, who will utilise their elected position as a platform to absolutely fight for the best planning development plan we can get for the city, uh, to talk on the specific issues, like if if the council is meant to be providing certain services and they're not, to make sure that they are, uh, to get that done and certainly to fight for the most progressive uh, public spending budget uh, in our uh, in our uh, communities, absolutely essential, but also to raise broader issues. So, for example, Solidarity only had one councillor on Dublin City Council for the last term and we were able to bring a motion on repealing the 8th to Dublin City Council. So those kinds of things can be a huge assist and a boost to a social movement that's happening outside of the structures of power where in fact the politicians were the slowest to change on that question and I'm sure they will be on other questions into the future as well. So it, it is really a huge assist to the movement to have people in there who will fight on those issues. Okay. Um, hopefully you'll, you'll all get in which would be great <laughs> and you can carry on your work. If you don't, how do you see yourself continuing in terms of activism or um, politics? I... Rachel. I ha- there's too many things. There's too many things that we are so close to getting right and we're not. You know, we have such great capability as a country, locally and nationally. We have immense potential and capability. Um, you know, obviously from just bringing it, boiling it down to my own family experience, you know, I have several family members who have different kinds of disabilities. You know, they're not being disabled by their condition. They're being disabled by their society. And it's something that obviously I'm never going to stop fighting on. Um, and then, you know, you bring it up into the wider issues. Housing, for me personally, it's, it's, it's appalling. You know, housing is a, home, a human right. And um, I really do believe, I know we shouldn't be sloganeering here, but like <laughs> homes for all, you know, that's not a huge ask. Um, and obviously then, you know, the climate emergency is, if you stop and give it a second to actually percolate into the old brain, it's terrifying. But again, we have huge capabilities and potential on this island um, for new, for new renewable energy, for getting public transport right. It's all there for us. We just have to stand up and speak out and fight for what is right for the people and not for profit and greed. So you won't be giving up anyway. Hell to the no. Hazel, what about you? I mean, it's, it's, it must be, how, how, how is that going for you? It's a competition, essentially. It's a popularity contest. I mean, people are going to choose you or not choose you. I mean, that's yep. the horrendous sort of reality of it. So how are you coping with that? And if it doesn't go your way, how do you think? Uh, my uh, one and a half year old will probably see me a lot more so <laughs> since or probably see a lot more of both her parents since uh, both myself and the other half are running as well oh so, god you've got a double so, yeah, yeah we, we have a double he's running in Kimmich right behind so but it's it's been for me it will always be the case of um, going back to what's right so uh, before I threw my hat um, uh, name into that, uh, to the hat. I was working for the Greens behind the scenes anyway. So I uh, was their chair of their executive and um, I had set up a women's group called uh, Manog Glossa with some of the other members. So it's all about trying to um, 
not just promote the party, but promote what the party is doing and promote what's right. So fight, as Rachel was saying, fight, continue to fight uh, the good fights. But I, I think there's a lot more we can do as well. What I've noticed with this campaign is that it may be a popularity contest, but you do get to meet the community a lot more. You get to meet voters a lot more. And I think there is that lack of community there in, in, in our society these days. Like back in the day, if I, I only had my kid a year and a half ago, but I've been told many a times that back in the day, you can probably have your neighbor in for a cup of tea and they can watch her or, or him while you go have a shower. Whereas with me and Alex, who felt really isolating. And what I've realized from the the birth of my child to then knocking on doors uh, every night is that there is a distinct, um, almost like, participation of of what we used to have as a community. So I would like to go back in and try to build back, tie more into my community, try to have, I guess, tie in with the various groups that I think Mm. are really worthwhile that I've met and try to fight fight there. So, Rita, talking about community there, and as we know, whether women have been formally involved in politics over the years, they have certainly been, you know, the keystone of so many community groups and in terms of any community movements, just not maybe in the more formal sense. But do you think that's what women can bring to the political um, landscape, just what Hazel talked about there? And are you seeing that yourself as you go around the doors? Yeah, definitely. I I think women can bring everything (laughs) to the political landscape and uh, that people of all genders and all backgrounds can really make a huge difference by getting involved. But certainly um, we have a fundraising culture in Ireland. We have this community culture. And part of that actually is because some of our public services are so bad (laughs) and so underfunded. But uh, really when like... A couple of years ago, when Irish Water was coming in, installing meters, it was just incredible to see women get their babies dressed in the morning and then go out and park in front of uh, those stopcocks and make sure, no, I, some of the people have to are dropping their kids, to, their older kids to school. I'm taking this early shift to make sure Irish Water don't get in ahead of us here. You know, incredible solidarity and actually being real leaders in the movement there. Obviously, we've had for a long time a complete gender imbalance in terms of decision making and that is toxic. It's really uh, not reflective of society. But it's not just about gender, it's about class as well. It's about all the other aspects of people's lives. Um, And I think if you look at some of the more spontaneous issues that are protests that have come up in recent years, I was involved with the uh, This Is Not Consent protests. And those that's just one example where people who are directly impacted by everyday sexism that is going on see something that is not right and take a stand on it and are disgusted at the inaction on that. Um, So I think that's the kind of area where we're going to see a lot of younger women who wouldn't necessarily have been involved with politics, you know, political parties and things like that before actually step in and make a real difference in terms of the politics that are making a difference uh, on the ground in people's lives. Mm. Rita, there's a housing demo. Give us some quick details about that. So one o'clock on Saturday, the 18th of May, meeting at the Garden of Remembrance and really important that people get out. It's the Saturday before the elections to make it clear housing's the number one issue. We need homes for all. Well, I think it's a really exciting time and like my daughter's going around seeing all the posters and seeing all of your faces up there and kind of 
really realizing oh there's mum there's a lot of women and mm. I know I said 6% at the start it doesn't sound like much but it, it feels visually a lot more and I think um, hopefully you're all going to make a difference I wish you all the best of luck Rachel you have one more thing to say yeah, well I just wanted to make the point um, uh, there would be a hell of a lot more women running if we had decent childcare yeah yeah no, that that is absolutely true. I I bring my little one camping most nights, mainly yeah. because we don't have childcare, and that that is a a up to uh, up to government itself, and it's a national issue. But if you look at um, the lack of crashes, like the lack of crashes, the lash, uh, lack of uh, affordable childcare, and then the next stage, uh, um, um, yourselves might note the schools. So as well, it is a huge problem. So yeah. we but just it's gonna, need it's to going to continue it. to be a huge problem yeah. while we rely on the private sector to provide childcare. Yeah. You know. So. Um, I myself am not included because I'm a childminder who works in the family home, but um, creche workers should look into joining uh, SIP2's Big Start campaign. Mm-hmm. They're trying to unionise the sector uh, to be able to get a sectoral agreement in terms of pay and to fight for more public investment in it. So uh, there is absolutely a need for us to fight on that because yeah. it's just push back onto the private family's responsibility and we have to say, no, actually yeah. we're a community, we're a society and it's not fair that a child from a disadvantaged background misses out and that their parents miss out on being able to live a life on that basis. Well, it's it's 21%. Sorry, I'm, I'm maybe dragging this out for you, but um, it's 21% is, is what we have in local and national government. That is the figure at the moment. And if you want to get that figure up beyond that, you in have to... In terms of women. To, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of women, you have to provide proper support, so... I mean, I wouldn't be in this without um, uh, one of my brothers has actually become my um, primary care of the kids well, because daddy works a yeah. whole lot yeah. and uh, I'm out nonstop as we all are, yeah. I'm sure, at this point. And yeah, I, w- I wouldn't have been able to do it without family support, okay. you know, so it is I think key. it's a really important it's point really to make. It's really key to women progressing full stop, but especially in politics because the hours are not very friendly no. um, to the family. Um, so, yeah, it's something we all, I think we can all agree, we need to work a lot <laughs> harder on this one. Okay, well, listen, it's been really interesting talking to you and I wish you all the best, um, Rita, Hazel and Rachel. Good luck on May 24th. Whatever happens, I know you'll all keep fighting anyway. Thank you. Thanks, Rosine. Thanks, Thanks, Rosine. And that's it for today. Thanks to all my guests, Nikki Gallagher, Joan McNabow, Rita Harold, Hazel Chu and Rachel Prendergast-Spollen. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. You can always find us on irishtimes.com with loads of other good shows like Worldview and Inside Politics. And if you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. 
Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.